Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. I think the top story of the week, just because it affected everybody in the country equally, was this presidential alert that went out from the White House. It was uh, similar to those Amber Alerts. It was an emergency alert system, just a test, a notification that went to everybody's phones. It was a text notification. And my producer, Miranda, joined me for this conversation. Yeah, we get into everything in the history of these types of alerts. We go back even to the 50s to cover what has FEMA been doing for the last almost 100 years trying to figure out how to get everybody notified. My favorite one was uh, a thing about buzzers and pink balloons. So it's a fun conversation about the history of these alerts. We started off by talking about what's the point of these alerts in the first place. It's designed to let the White House inform the country something of a grave public emergency, terrorist attack or an invasion. We don't know what kind, maybe aliens. We've all heard these alerts before. The difference with this one is that you can opt out of other alert systems. This one you couldn't opt out. So everybody was getting it. The country has a long, strange history with these types of alert systems. They've been trying to get them going on since the 50s. So Miranda, tell us a little bit about FEMA's role in this and some of these early systems. You put it best when we were speaking off air FEMA has kind of been this mysterious doomsday prep wing of the government, which I didn't know about until all this research we had to do for this segment. And since the dawn of the Cold War, they've been trying to figure out the best way to reach the most amount of citizens and let them know, hey, something terrible is about to happen. And like you said, it's been a long, strange history. The first one that they developed was in the early 50s. And at the time, they called it Conrad, which was a mixture of the words control of electromagnetic radiation. And what this would do was upon activation of this warning system, all the radio stations across the country would either shut down or switch formats over to broadcasting from the same two channels. And it would be a recorded message from a guy who was a TV personality at the time and best friends with President Eisenhower, Arthur Godfrey. And he was a trusted voice. He would record this public service announcement. And there are no copies of his audio, by the way, which is very mysterious. And basically just warning everybody to stay calm and that Americans will survive whatever the nuclear war is going to happen. Right. Kind of like what happens now with the emergency alert system. Just a voice comes on and says, hey, it's an emergency. Be calm, et cetera, et cetera. But this one was just funny because it was tied to TV personality, Arthur Godfrey. Yeah. So that was early on in the 50s. And then another system that they had, which I kind of thought was totally ineffective, and I guess that's why they canceled it, was they were setting up this system of buzzers and pink balloons. What was that? They did it in a really small concentration because this was just a test. This was never anything that was majorly rolled out. But in the small town of Charlotte, Michigan, which happens to be near uh, Civil Defense Agency headquarters at the time, they set up with 500 warning generators. And with this, they distributed just over like a thousand devices to everybody in the town. And they were to plug this into one of their electrical outlets And when they did the test of the system, basically all the outlets started buzzing. Yeah. And you were to go, I guess, to your backyard and release a pink balloon. And that (laughs) pink balloons were supposed to signify that something terrible had happened. I mean, that's uh, totally crazy. You can't trust people to be reliable enough to do that. But it was supposed to alert 90 percent of the country within 30 seconds that something crazy was going on. (laughs) But there is no message attached to it. Right. It's just pink balloons. That means 
mass hysteria would break out. So they canceled that program because it was going to be totally ineffective. And then around the time of Nixon, there was a new system that they were trying to get set up. Richard Nixon and LBJ wanted to develop their own version of it, which they called the Decision Information Distribution System, the DIDS device. (laughs) And what this was is it's something that you can plug into your TV. Like think about a fire stick in the 70s. Basically the same concept. And so you plug this into your TV and what it would do was change the channel. If you had some kind of warning set from Washington, it would get on all the TVs and automatically change the channel to everybody would be watching the same program, informing you of what's going on. But at the same exact time that this was happening, and this is what's leading us to what happened yesterday, the public lost all trust with the government because of what happened with Watergate. And they were very concerned about government having direct access to something that was inside their home. And as you said, people were kind of mad. They don't want the president to be able to buzz your phone whenever he wants. Just to clarify, it's not the president sitting in his office and saying, I'm going to send out this alert. No, there's a process that goes through. He does have to direct FEMA to send it out. So there's a whole process behind it. You know, after that, in the 80s, they said, on the emergency broadcast system, the one that we all know takes over television and everything like that. So, you know, there's this long history that we have in this country of these emergency broadcast systems. This is a new one. I think it's actually a good idea. Everybody always has their cell phones on it. We're hyper-connected. You get notifications on your phone. You can turn on TV. And obviously, if something's breaking, it's going to be on a news station. But it is good to have something direct when you're in your car or you're just walking out for a hike. It's good to have it come to you personally. It's really about how they use it. And then obviously what the emergency is, hopefully aliens don't invade us. Right. And in the event that something were to happen and we get these alerts, they say Americans have about eight to 12 minutes to seek shelter before something happens. And in a life threatening situation that could help. We just don't want to mess it up like Hawaii did the last time saying, you know, an incoming attack was happening. Forgot about that. There's a long, strange history of emergency alerts. Thanks, Miranda. Thank you, Oscar. Next up is my favorite story of the week, really. I love stories about bank robbers and bank robberies. It takes a special person to have to go through all this stuff to finally commit and say, I want to rob a bank and then research and figure out how you're going to do it. This guy in particular has an interesting story. He won the lottery, hit it big, won $19 million and then blew through all of it. He fell from the highest of highs and out of desperation turned to robbing banks. Miranda, you were actually lived in the area where some of this stuff was going around. I'm a Santa Clarita native, and I think like five out of his eight or nine banks that he hit were in that town, and that's my hometown. So that's all anybody was talking about on Facebook for weeks was this PT Cruiser Bandit. It was completely captivating, and I'm ready for like the Martin Scorsese Goodfellas-style movie about this guy. I remember seeing a lot of news stories about it when it's happening locally, especially for you, you know, you think, have I ever run into that guy? Have I seen that getaway car? And that's why they named him the PT cruiser bandit. It was his getaway car. He used the stolen money that he got from the banks to buy this getaway car. So we spoke to Natalie O'Neill. She's a contributor to the daily beast. And we started off by asking her who was the PT cruiser bandit Jim Hayes. So Jim Hayes was a security guard who back in the late 90s won $19 million in the California state lottery. (laughs) And then over the course of the next two decades, sort of amazingly managed to lose it all. And then after losing it all, became a pretty successful bank robber, got away with 10 of them in the LA area 
before he was then caught by the FBI last year. So I just have been talking to him. He's in prison now and he's been writing letters. So he kind of ended up telling me everything that happened in between the time that he won the lottery and started this kind of life of crime. My first question here is, how do you strike up a relationship with a former bank robber guy in prison? How do you broach the subject of tell me your story? (laughs) I called his lawyer and we had a good rapport. His lawyer then told me, you know, I have a hunch he's going to be the kind of guy who wouldn't mind telling his story. So why don't you send him a letter in prison and just see if he's up for it? He had already pled guilty and he was waiting for his sentencing hearing at the point that I contacted him. So he basically, before we started talking, wanted us, wanted to wait until he had been sentenced in case anything in the article came out that he felt like, you know, maybe made him look bad. So basically I just wrote him a really personal handwritten letter saying, hey, I am fascinated by what I've read about you. I want to know more. Can we talk? Can we can we kind of be pen pals? And he wrote me back. And then I send him a list of like five or six questions, just hoping he might get back to me. And he wrote me back just this like really amazingly like upbeat letter with like a really <laughs> good sense of humor wow. and like a lot, lot of exclamation points. <laughs> just not what I expected at all, like in terms of tone. Right. So I was like, oh man, now I'm even more fascinated by you because you don't seem to be bummed out about the fact that now you're doing three almost three years in federal prison he kind of has this happy-go-lucky even now kind of attitude which is after just- everything he has been through well, well let's start with some of the good stuff then so he won 19 million dollars in the lottery it was actually 13.7 million once taxes were taken out a crime in and of its own so you got uh, shorted about five million dollars out of that he was getting 20 annual payments of about $684,000 every year. What did he spend his money on? What was that life like after he hit it big? At first, it was just super extravagant. He bought, I think, a total of at least 17 exotic sports cars. So he had Ferraris, Lamborghinis, Bentleys. He was like a very into cars and so just dumped a ton of money into that. I think it was might have been his first wife who said that all that money changed him and he had this hotsy totsy attitude <laughs> after he won. <laughs> I love yeah, that Yeah, that was his long-term girlfriend. She saw him change. She met him, I think, when they were teenagers. He was 17, and they stayed together for 15 years. And so she saw him change towards the end of their relationship. He was uh, partying with actors. He had a personal photographer at some point, which I thought was pretty interesting. He said he raced Lamborghinis with Mario Andretti and everything. Whatever you're going to do to live life to the fullest, beachfront houses, actress, girlfriends, that whole thing is what he was all doing. So, And that's what happens. Later on in the article, someone was saying, that's what happens to these people. They hit it big. They're thrust into like another subset of social life now, and they're not ready for it. And they don't know how to really interact in that when they come up with so much money. Exactly. Yeah. And the way that his second wife explained it to me was that, look, you know, that he's a guy from kind of a middle class upbringing. He was working in the security field. He had he really had no sort of concept of wealth management or like the smart things you can do and he didn't really 
care. Like he was just kind of high off of the adrenaline and the new money of it all and the status. And he made a lot of bad decisions with his money. And I think he'll tell you that too. He was just not really kind of living in the moment and not really thinking about the future and not investing and just blew a lot of it in those first years. Another uh, funny little tidbit was his first wife was named Stephanie. His second wife also named Stephanie. So (laughs) there's something to be had there. But yeah, it's weird. But let's talk about where things started to go bad for him. He had a previous injury, work-related injury, and he suffered from three herniated discs. And then as a lot of people in this country go through, I mean, there's a huge opioid epidemic right now. He got stuck on painkillers. He was prescribed Vicodin, Norco, Oxycontin, and he got hooked. And after that, a lot of the money, you know, he's living life large, and then a lot of the money was also being spent on these painkillers. That is a big part of it. And that, But just backing up for a second, I think when things really kind of started to go south, just in terms of money, it was after he separated from his first wife, she got half of all of those $680,000 paychecks. So immediately, it's not that much every year. Yeah, she year. was getting half. I think he, she was getting like three hundred grand a year from that. That ballpark. And then, and then that's before income tax. It sounds like a ton of money, and it really is a lot of money to you and me, but right. a ton of it gets taken away. And then you think about how much his wife gets. It's not as crazy amount of money as you would think. But so, yeah. So anyway, he was already not quite at that level that he was in the late nineties when he first won in terms of wealth and then hurt his back and got hooked on, on like so many Americans, it seems like these days do, you know, had easy access to these pain pills without really knowing it just got totally hooked. And things rolled from there. He, um, had some bad luck. He ended up moving into like a friend's garage. He was just stuck. He had no money. He had nothing to do. And the way he finally convinced himself to turn to robbery, to turn to robbing banks, ended up being he was listening to 80s metal music with his cat. The idea popped in his head. And then he started listening to Judas Priest breaking the law. And by the time that song ended, breaking the law and just the words and the lyrics coming out of it, he decided, I'm going to rob a bank. I'm going to do this. He was doing research. His first robbery ended up being super easy to him in his head. How did that first robbery go? His first robbery, he walked in past a teller, a very scared female bank teller, a note demanding cash. He had no weapon on him and she handed it over and he was out the door in, in three minutes. And I think he was kind of shocked at how easy it was. It was like just sort of emotionally for him. He had to really like talk himself into like pep himself up and in terms of like getting himself pumped enough to do it. But then after he was really shocked at just how easy it was to get away with it. And he got hooked. It was a rush for him. I, I think from uh, you know you speaking to him, he said that that poor teller was right at a central casting. She looked like a librarian and was terrified. And it's that weird thing. You never forget your first. And that was his first rush and thrill. And it worked. And he started doing research to keep it going. He obviously had a drug problem at that point. He went from painkillers to heroin and he needed to feed that habit. And this is what he was doing. And he had pretty good success. He hit nine out of 10 banks. 10 out of 11, but still he was on a roll. And also this, you have to kind of remember, this is on the heels of, okay, not long after he got hooked on pain pills, the condo that he was managing completely burnt down and he lost all of his possessions. So it's kind of this weird switch from, oh, hey, I have so much good luck in my life to 
everything is going wrong. I'm now I have nothing. I'm addicted to heroin and I can't have access to the money that I used to just get so easily every year. He's kind of feeling sorry for himself at this point and it's not hard for him to justify and in his brain think that this is a victimless crime. Right. That the that you know, he's not hurting anyone. He doesn't have a gun. And he was never violent with anybody. He never even had a gun. He told people he did, but he never had one. So I mean, I think that helped later on <laughs> with his sentencing. They called him the PT Cruiser Bandit. And I, I live in the L.A. area, so I remember this a couple years ago when this was going on, seeing it in the news and, and following this. Bank robbers have always fascinated me. So he bought that PT Cruiser with the money that he had been stealing, and that was his getaway car. How did F- the FBI actually catch him? Like, when did things turn? I know one of the things was a huge mistake. He hit the same bank twice. So he hit it once successfully, and then he is kicking himself for this now, but then went back not too long later, hit the same bank, but a teller recognized him that was there before. So he fled without any money at that point. And the lead investigator who was kind of starting to get onto him at this point said, all right, he just failed. I know he's going to hit again soon. And I know from this map that I've drawn out that I have a pretty good hunch that he's located all along this same thoroughfare because here is where all of this, it's the thing that connects all of these banks. So after that failed robbery, they set up a camera along the highway and basically were just looking for this, knowing that he was probably going to strike and knowing what his vehicle was, set it up. And then when inevitably he hit again, and I don't think it, it wasn't too much later in terms of timeline, it was definitely less than a month. Then knowing that he'd hit again, just synced it up with the timeline of when the bang had occurred and then went through the camera footage. They got a a help from a tip. You know, the bust at his house was very dramatic. He was walking out of the garage and they cornered him with AR-15s and Glock pistols and got him and boom, then he was arrested. He ended up being sentenced to 33 months in prison, three years of supervised release after that, you know, when he would get out. And he had to pay back the money and restitution. His release date is February 23rd, 2020. So he still has a little bit of time in there. What has he been doing with his time there? And what are his plans after he gets released? He's been making art in prison. He's good at drawing. Every letter that he sent me had like some sort of (laughs) super elaborate picture on it. Like one had Garfield on it. People think he's a cat guy. (laughs) Oh, you have to post Uh, some of those on Twitter or something. I mean, so people can see. He wants to publish a book at the end of this, right? He's working on it on a book. I know that he's he's like playing softball. He says he's exercising and that he's kind of like tapped into his more spiritual side. He has a funny, like optimistic view of all of it now because he said like, look, I'm clean and sober now. It's yeah. kind of like forced detox. <laughs> For the better, he even said himself that it helped him more so than the money ever did. And that's why I, I mean, I love these stories. It's that rise and fall, it's coming into something and, you know, everybody internalizes it. Like, what would you do? How would I react? This happened to me. And it's just a crazy story from being on the highest of highs to being so desperate that you have to turn to bank robbery. And then obviously, you know, you get caught, you know, nobody ever gets away with anything at the end of it. Natalie O'Neill, contributor for the Daily Beast and freelance journalist. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.